There is a basic question that has absolutely got me going and uh, came to a kind of head in a conversation I had uh, just uh, a few days ago in Salisbury, England, with someone whose opinion and whose experience I value as much as anyone I know in the Church of England. And uh, uh, she and I uh, came to a point, a kind of crystal clear point of, of discussion about this great issue, the issue being, are there two messages for people? That is, a message for the younger human being uh, before uh, life and tragedy and impasse and paralysis and uh, some form of uh, obstacle blocks their progress as a person, uh, which often happens in midlife, is there a, a message uh, that uh, is helpful and important and sustaining for someone in youth who is building up and creating yourself, creating the being who you are, and then a second and different message for the ego once it has been created, which is now in free fall or tailspin, to quote Whit Stillman's brilliant new discussion of his new movie, Damsels in Distress, this um, discussion of the tailspin, which Stillman has uh, described in connection with that new movie. <clears throat> Is there a different message for the person in tailspin and impasse and obstacle and blockage and failure and dead-endedness from the message of support and hope and sustaining and uh, uh, comfort and uh, uh, encouragement uh, and aid uh, to the poor uh, young person who's trying to find out who he or she is? Are there two different messages? And this is um, a question that has absolutely afflicted uh, the uh, discussions I've had with people in ministry for the last 15 or years, certainly before I became sensitive to it, which, interestingly enough, is not 15 years. It was in 2007 that the question even first began to occur when my own life uh, sort of came into a brick wall, <clears throat> when my own being and personal sense of self. And... Um, this uh, came very much to the fore in uh, Chevy Chase, where I would preach a message. I was constantly being accused, lovingly and um, without terrible stress, but constantly being uh, – it was constantly stated that, Paul, your message is for people who are over the age of 50. Your message is for people who have been disillusioned by the collapse of their dreams or the diminution of their hopes or something that has happened to to hold them up in life, uh, some crippling breakdown or uh, cesura in their life's uh, journey. And your message is for such people, but for young people, your message doesn't hit home at all. It's, it's, it seems very much a downer and a disillusioning sort of, you know, don't work too hard because it's all going to come crashing down or don't apply yourself to get ahead in politics or in the Washington, D.C. world of, uh, of uh, journalism or um, moving ahead in some in, uh, beltway, inside the beltway industry. Uh, don't try to do it because it's bound to end anyway and collapse and tatters. So people said it's a downer for the young, but perhaps an, uh, an interpretation and an observant, reflective 
sort of contemplative message for the older. Richard Rohr, the marvelous Franciscan uh, thinker, uh, says that basically implies that uh, there are really two sorts of messages. One for the person who is forming himself, Wilhelm Meister, you know, the, the person, the Bildungsroman, young man, young woman who's trying to decide who, who am I? And then the, the word for Max Sledge, the Robert Duvall character in Tender Mercy, who was I? You know, who was that man who's now uh, absolutely dispirited and uh, uh, lying in pieces in the ground uh, as a result of alcoholism and a failed marriage and a difficult daughter, you know, to quote Tender Mercies. So you're <clears throat> these two messages, and Paul, you're getting the wrong one for the wrong group. Save the message for Max Sledge, but don't give the uh, Wilhelm Meister, you know, who needs a lot of heart. We gotta have heart. All you really need is heart. Uh, damn Yankees. Such a great musical. People always say that musical is, uh, reflects the 50s. I, I think it reflects an optimistic uh, and, and deeply heartfelt emotional view of love and relationships that never ceases to make you cry and go out singing. But anyway, these is it two messages? Or is the message of, of life one? Now, this came very uh, uh, abruptly to... Um, into uh, consciousness uh, last Monday when I was in a, a wonderful cathedral town in uh, southwest England and uh, began to have a discussion with uh, a person who's uh, been such a teacher to me and is now a, a canon of Guildford Cathedral retired but living in Salisbury. And I said to her, I said, do you, do, are we saying that there is a that there is a, a what is is there a different message to the person who is creating himself or herself sort of finding and then solidifying and finally becoming rather certain and formed is there a, is there a message for someone who's finding shape to their self uh, as over against uh, the message of 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 uh, of acquiescence and humility and a certain um, disillusioned reticence about the hopes of the world, a certain kind of world denying ordinance that you inevitably come to as uh, age hits you and as circumstances hits you and the the very things you thought you wanted so deeply are are not uh, given you or taken away from you, especially as you approach much later the term of the worldly human fleshly self known as death. And she said to me, <clears throat> yes, the first message is to support and sustain and aid the person in finding out who they are. And the second message is to give some kind of reassurance and fresh vision and understanding and commentary and profound interpretation when that self begins to crumble, whether through health or through emotional problems or through circumstances of life. <clears throat> and we were really just about to come to a place, I think, of really getting right at the absolute core of this, what I regard as a most important question, when we were interrupted by some other visitors who had come to lunch and we had to change... Uh, horses then move on to a different dynamic. And I was sorry for that because I wasn't able before the uh, catching a train back uh, to London uh, to pursue it. And I wish I had. And that's what I've been thinking about ever since. Now, what um, a, a couple of thoughts have occurred to me on this. Uh, the, the first is I, I was found it very interesting that Philip Wiley, 
whom I admire so, whose books are, many of them at least, seem so badly written, and I've just read his so-called masterpiece from 1934, Finley Wren, which is actually very well written, but many of his books do not come across as being very well written. They don't hold your attention. Um, and um, he, he did say in uh, his classic novel from 1948, I think, Opus 21, that is impossible to read, and yet extremely worth reading, if I can put it that way. He has a very uh, disturbing and uh, fascinating um, um, uh, dis uh, scene. It's on page 259, when the hero, whose name is Philip Wiley, the hero characteristically in Philip Wiley novels is Philip Wiley, and Philip Wiley has a very uh, unnerving uh, um, conversation in a hotel room with a friend of his father's, his father being... Uh, uh, Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian clergyman, a friend of his father's who's obviously uh, sort of a take on the current rector of St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church on Park Avenue in that period of the 30s or 40s because the he the whole way this very nice uh, rector who has a lot of bonhomie but is genuinely interested and concerned and is trying to be a sweetheart to Philip Wiley who is in fact in the story living with a potentially terminal medical diagnosis. And so this minister comes to call him in his hotel and is nice as he can be, a little a bit breezy, but basically a good guy, not a bad guy, a guy who really wants to do well. He's come to invite the Philip Wiley character to address the young people. And um, this is uh, part of a uh, conversation I'm going to read you now that falls apart into complete alienation and bitter departure in which Wiley basically at the end uh, 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 requests that the Episcopal minister from St. Bart's leave and go and never come back. And he's very mean about it. The hero is extremely angry, bitter, and uh, unkind in the way he deals with this very well-meaning, albeit uh, supposedly superficial, clergyman. But this is the key to it, this discussion. <clears throat> I said to um, the parson, they're in a hotel room, I believe in original sin, I said. I am a firm believer in original sin. What? I believe in it, since I believe every religion, goes on the Philip Wiley character, is the attempt, the compulsive and unconscious attempt, to make a schemata of instincts that will be palpable to the sense perceptions of human personality. And, since I also believe that religions have generally failed in that function, causing the sin. The rector of St. Bartholomew's, or whatever the church is actually, failed how? Failed by being turned to the support of the ego. Oh, my heavens. Now, that is the heart of the discussion. How, asks the rector, do you believe that religions have generally failed? Wiley replies, failed by being turned to the support of the ego. Now that um, line in Opus 21 came uh, trippingly to the tongue as I um, uh, listened to my teacher of years ago and a highly regarded um, figure in UK theology and spirituality as she said, well, basically there are two messages. And um, I didn't have the time to explore this quote, which I would love to have done, because I have a feeling she would have agreed with that quote from Opus 21. What I think uh, I interpreted her to be saying, but it's a, a, many have said this, and uh, uh, I hear it all the time as kind of a rebuke to what I now attempt to communicate to sufferers and people and to myself, is that, as I said before, 
that you are uh, you, you come into life very uh, inchoate and through experiences and through moving about and through moving up against various other individuals and people beginning with parents and siblings and so on and so on schooling you find out sort of who you seem to be or who this self that you've who this identity of Paul is and that identity through a variety of circumstances uh, and genetic uh, inheritances and environmental forces and simply things that happen to you sort of form up into kind of a basic self that then um, navigates and swims uh, down the river of life. Now, that um, uh, picture is um, one that, therefore, uh, according to this view as I take it, uh, needs a lot of love, uh, kindness, compassion, tender support, uh, kind of uh, cheerleading, but without being shallow, and not, not kind of, you know, typical kind of American cultural, you know, let everybody is special all the time, you know, everything is wonderful, uh, but <clears throat> rather the kind of coming alongside and, and con- like a coach, you know, the coach in... Uh, in um, Friday Night Lights, uh, Eric Taylor and, and, and also Tammy, his wife, they come alongside these young people who are constantly falling and then getting up again and falling, and they're constantly helping them up to sort of move forward to get, up to, to, get to college or to uh, get through college uh, or to win the game or to overcome the terrible handicap of a father who's a drug addict or a mother who, you know, is drunk all the time and wakes up with a different guy in the house uh, every week it looks like it whatever you want to call it and that's what happens and so the purpose of the coach the purpose of the mentor the purpose of the surrogate dad the surrogate mom and the, certainly the purpose ideally of the parish priest or minister is to uh, assist in the person's overcoming the various problems to find a develop a clearly stated ego and the thing that has always struck me about that is wrong is because it seems to me that if that were the case, then given the fact that everybody has to die and that given the fact that it is characteristic for people to come to a certain point in life, whether it's through addiction or through a besetting personality trait or through some other terrible person who treats you badly or uh, you many, many different forms it takes, you are setting somebody up for an inevitable disappointment and all the hopes that you have placed on this person's coming to a secure, stable, non-overly fragile self or identity or ego will ultimately be destroyed if only finally by physical death. So that's what I'm interested in. And I don't, seems to me that um, if the message of the first part of life is to support the ego, which is um, Wiley's beef in that book against the church, then the, uh, it's at odds with the message of the second part of the book, which is to understand uh, it when the Christmas ornament shatters in a million pieces or uh, when the thing is blown apart completely and uh, you, you, you wake up one day and you understand the world is basically out to get you, quay world, and that the you that was, it was out to get it was a very, very fragile thing of shreds and patches and all the things we say about the self. So am I therefore guilty of giving, like an Indian giver, does that mean I'm, I'm giving one message in kind of crossing my fingers, knowing that at a certain point in the 40s or 50s, it's going to shift into a completely different message of 
kind of interpretation, observation, and even meditation and contemplation of the inevitable way that your life is shot to hell by life, by people, by circumstances, by your own deliberate fault. So is it possible there can be two messages, or does that seem like a form of, of kind of uh, Indian giving, ultimately some form of uh, lying? Uh, and that's what I honestly think. And that's where uh, my friend in England seemed initially to differ, although I know her well enough to know that uh, together we um, actually believe at this point in our lives, and she's a bit older than I, uh, the same exact things. I uh, would just like to have carried this question further and really pushed her to come out on this one, and we didn't have the opportunity. But I will do that. But this podcast is basically um, observing that there are really... Uh, uh, that there cannot be two messages. There must be one. Uh, the message is you must be born again. Uh, to, that, that, don't put that into a dogmatic <clears throat> confessional category. Um, I, was in a, <laughs> I was in the post office today getting some stamps, and uh, uh, the guy made a little mistake, in the, in the, the very nice fellow made a mistake in the way he was writing up the bill, and he said, oh, he said, I've, I've, I've mistaken you for the wrong denomination. And I thought, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, don't mistake me for the wrong denomination because <laughs> I wanted uh, some 28-cent stamps, not just 44 forever U.S. stamps. So he'd mistaken me for the wrong denomination. Don't uh, think that I'm talking just about denominational or sectarian or individual Christianity. I'm talking about a very deep truth of life. You must be born again. Or to put it another way, you have to die. If you don't know that you have to die, it'll be a rude awakening. You have to start from scratch or you have to end to scratch. Uh, what did uh, Wordsworth say? Is it Wordsworth or is it somebody like Coleridge maybe who said we go from from darkness to a limited space uh, back to the darkness? And I don't believe that. I think that's a very negative way of saying it. What is positive is that we are uh, the termination that physical death involves is simply a um, a kind of conclusion or physical form of the needing to find a new basis upon which to live, the other basis being false by definition because it doesn't work. And what uh, makes me say that, I think of Ulrich Swingley. You know, um, in the Episcopal Church, the worst thing you could possibly be a few years ago was to be called a Zwinglian. Um, that was a supposedly fancy, nuanced way of saying you sound like a Baptist. In other words, if you didn't have a sufficiently high doctrine of the Eucharist, you would immediately be dismissed as a Zwinglian because Ulrich Zwingli, the uh, 16th century reformer of the city of Zurich in Switzerland, had a supposedly lower view of the sacraments than did Calvin and the, also the uh, composers of the English prayer book at the Reformation. And um, the actual thing that's really interesting about Zwingli is his life. The fact that he died in battle, and I've seen the sword that he was carrying and the helmet with the, the terrible uh, dent in it uh, uh, with which the Catholic soldier at the Battle of Kappel uh, killed him <coughs> in the helmet. It's in the State Muse City Museum in Zurich. Uh, but that's really it's interesting is his death but also his life because Wengley was a, a nice uh, pilgrimage-loving uh, Roman Catholic priest married in a common law sort of way that Roman Catholic priests often were. It wasn't a, considered right, but they were. And he... Um, he got the plague. He got what we would call something like the Black Death, and he came extremely 
extremely and a hair's breadth to dying of the plague. And then he recovered from the pest, from the plague. He wrote a beautiful hymn, and his conversion came about as a result of his, of his recovery. As a very young man, a young priest in holy orders, uh, he, he saw the nature of life by having almost died. And then everything slipped away, all his clothing in the Carlisle sense, all his, his identity markers, all his stuff that he thought was important just slipped away immediately, just as he had sweated out his disease. And he emerged uh, with an entirely new life, like uh, T.S. Eliot. Remember that title of his second volume of his biography, that wonderful English biography is called Eliot's New Life. Well, Zwingli's New Life, or the same is true of St. Francis and the terrible <clears throat> experience he had as a result of the war that he got involved in. St. Ignatius Loyola, similarly, a terrible experience as a young man in war that uh, brought about this amazing conversion as a young man. Or uh, the Buddha, who on, uh, in, um, what is it, uh, 644 or 544? I always get that wrong. I, I want to say 644, but uh, it was uh, uh, on May 24th, that I do know, um, uh, he... Uh, was born, and then he, as a very young man, when he <clears throat> saw the four visions of the nature of human suffering, he resolved to leave as a, in his, what, late 20s, early 30s. So here is a young man, Siddhartha, a young man, Ignatius, a young man, Francis of Assisi, Jesus of Nazareth, at age 30, a young man who goes off in search, together with John the Baptist, his cousin, goes off as a young man. And uh, the same is true, actually, for the leader of another great religion, uh, Muhammad, who went off as a young man, the camel drover, to discover, to find out in the cave what, 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 what was life, what was the meaning of life in the face of death. And the same is true of St. Pacomius. I really do. The, the monastic movement was led by young people. It was not a religion of dissolution, 55-year-olds, you know, who are just so um, ash, ashen and uh, wizened and look like tobacco, you know, oh, life has treated us. These were young men. St. Pacomius goes off in Egypt and at age, what, 32, 31, um, having become a Christian because of uh, when he was recovering from wounds from the Roman army, some Christians were sweet to him and kind and helped him and he was converted and then he goes off at age 32 to found into the desert to be to, to start monasticism and leave the world behind get thee behind me you know goodbye cruel world i'm off to join the army you know um he went off and and within just a few years he had thousands of young men and I'm young women in a different place but the same thing just like saint Clair with francis he had thousands of young people camped in little uh a small huts, uh, living lives of, of giving up the world and giving up all ambition and all ideas of changing things and all false hopes of worldly amelioration and uh, the kingdom of God in this world. And we can build a beautiful city, that song that was added to the movie Godspell. Uh, all the messianism of the new world, they chucked in favor of a profound and deep attention to that which is eternal and that which is ultimately sustainable, which, by the way, is not echo-friendly um, um, means of... Uh, of uh, 
getting, deriving energy from the earth. I mean, that may be so temporarily, but carbon handprints are larger than ever. And I've been to England recently and I've seen what happens when a country grows its population beyond its ability to sustain it and to handle it. And I've been there, you know, and I've been there for years and years, but that's not the point. The point is these were young people. They saw almost always through some kind of crisis, which for many people comes in midlife, they saw as young people the um, tremendous need to regroup and ask the questions of life, what in the name of, you know, what is happening here? What does it mean that St. Ignatius um, almost dies of a wound as a very young man? What does it mean, the same is true of St. Bonaventure? What does it uh, mean of, uh, of to, to all these young Robert De Niro converted Jesuits that life, they've seen it, they're the lucky ones. Francis, the lucky ones, St. Damien, you know, many of these people. Uh, I uh, note, by the way, that St. Bernadette of Lourdes was, what, wasn't she just 14 when she um, had her vision and entered the great uh, conventual life uh, and uh, made such an impression on uh, on uh, on uh, France, Spain, and Southern Europe. Uh, these were young people, and uh, therefore I want to take what Wiley said, that religion is so often in service of the ego, and therefore, says Wiley, I don't want it. Here was a man who'd had a paternity suit against him when he was a senior in high school or a very a young in life. He tells the whole story in his book, Finley Wren, but it's a true story, and he was accused by someone of fathering a baby that he hadn't fathered and it was proven but he still was found guilty if, because of the particular law system and the jury system in that part of New Jersey when it happened and he was d deeply troubled by this, and then he dropped out of Princeton. He had a terrible experience with a with a professor, and he just dropped out, just like other people I admire, dropped out of a great college and, and left, and here he had this paternity suit, and then he, this thing happened, and that thing happened, and then he got married and had a child, and then he was troubled with alcoholism, and he finally went over to, to Zurich and uh, consulted uh, C.G. Jung and uh, was uh, profoundly helped. And so as a very young man, he comes a cropper, and he comes into something profound and new and everything shifts as a result of therapy. These are not middle-aged people. Most of us march through life believing that ambition is proper and that we should be moving forward and that we should the same things that applied when we were 18 apply when we were 28 and we're 38 and 48 and even people who are 58 ought to be still wanting the same things. I had a natural father who honestly believed that the most important uh, uh, defeat in his life was that he hadn't made Phi Beta Kappa when he was in college and uh, to the day he died he told me that the one thing he wished uh, he could have and could I even help him find a way to uh, get a f become a member of Phi Beta Kappa, at least on an honorary basis somewhere, or the people that, you know, go to their deaths wishing they were on the board of such and such or had this particular honor or that particular honor or this particular, you know, um, new uh, medal struck. I mean, we had someone we knew in New York City who uh, absolutely lived to have medals. He was a very famous man in 
the, you haven't heard of him, but then he certainly was such. And he always wanted to have medals that had his face on them presented by this government or that place or this institution. And I mean, he really lived for this stuff and he never changed. I mean, he was that way till the day he died. He never changed. He was still, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Why do we know that in his case? Because he was still looking for it. If he'd found what he was looking for, to quote you two, then he wouldn't have still been looking for it because he would have already found it, but he never did. And so um, I'm wanting to say that as a result of looking at these young spiritual heroes uh, and looking at Wiley's very brilliant word that uh, he did not want to be part of a religion that simply saw its primary focus without even saying it in many words is to somehow support the human false ego, the false self of human grasping and human desire to have and to achieve and to be something defined by somebody else or some other scale of values that is not inward but is somehow uh, legislated, commonly known as the law, uh, that that's not the way it is. So here's my question. How do you preach this message <clears throat> to people who are not ready to receive it? So it's, a, it's a pretty a frequently stated message in life. How does one, and I found this very true in the ministry, as soon as I started preaching this to sort of your between 28 and 38 couples, families who are in the midst of this treadmill of raising small children with countless after-school activities, 10 trillion different pressures on them, financial, house, keeping up with the Joneses, all the different things they thought they should do, extracurricular activities, but mainly getting their children to be this, that, or the other kind of child, and this treadmill, the men being overcommitted and overidentified with their careers, and the women being overcommitted and overidentified to the children, uh, no conversation really in the bedroom, very little copulation, um, uh, and just a tremendous amount of overwhelming fatigue that would ultimately end in a kind of disappointment because we saw it in generation after generation after generation when the women would get to the point when the children would leave and they would be bereft and all of a sudden everything they'd lived for had gone. And now, of course, helicopter moms and texting, but kids don't like it. College kids and young adults do not like it when their parents breathe down their necks. I don't care what you think, they don't. They may accept it, but they're lying to you. Part of them doesn't like it, at least. Part of them is living another life. <clears throat> and the men with their careers, they're giving all they have, and they finally do something, and they make whatever they think they should have been able to make, and then they're inevitably fired, destroyed, attacked, betrayed. Um, <clears throat> something happens, the company is bought, you know. They, they become the head of a company, and then they're bought out in their 40s, and what the heck happened here? So, so so I would preach this message, you might call it a foreshadowing message uh, and um, proleptic message, and they just hate it. They'd absolutely hate it. They were the hardest people to get through. The people who were most engaged uh, with the kind of runaround of life were the people that kept bucking it, um, and the people that were older got it, and interestingly enough, the very young got it. The very young, I mean, it was obvious to people like the pretenders, Chrissy Hind, in the early songs, or anybody who started a rock band early on, that life was pretty difficult. And uh, a young person understands it. The younger you are, the more clearly you understand the true issues. But when you sort of get this solidified self with solidified ideas and solidified aspirations and very stereotyped or... Uh, sort of set, calcified um, a picture of what life is supposed to be, it's very hard to get through. So yes, in a way, it's very hard to get through to that generation. But one thing we can say, if we do get through to the 25 through 45, we're really going to help. Because otherwise, the disappointment and the disillusionment and the shock of life when it finally hits can cause suicide. Uh, there's a great l a scene in... Um, in uh, the end of the dream, Wiley's last novel, when a liberal, a quote, not liberal theolog 
a, a liberal in terms of believing that you can actually make a change in life in the in ecological terms is finally confronted with the failure of all his preconceptions to actually work. All the things he's worked for, but he's very young, he's about 24, have so completely collapsed that he's realized the limitations of life, that he cannot do what he had thought he could do because of a disaster that happens. And Wiley describes him just crying and wanting to commit suicide because he has no religious moorings and he has no, he's never dealt with the fact that there might be such a thing as a boundary or wall that he cannot get over, a problem that is insuperable. He, he simply sits down and starts crying and wants to die. He is absolutely and completely, when he sees the nature of reality, he wants to slit his wrists. And that's what happens with people when they have no proleptic resources to draw upon that you know everything you do you basically have to keep your fingers crossed because nothing you do is going to perdure that is one thing we know uh, things never change I was at a graduation at Oxford University and this is the last thing I want to say last Saturday, and uh, uh, the vice uh, 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 chancellor of the university, which is rare in these uh, these great graduations, was actually the main uh, officiant, or uh, he was the uh, master of ceremonies, and he is all in Latin, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing, but he did give a slight English oration at the very beginning, and he said, uh, why the company of learned individuals is a great thing and why Latin is important and why tradition is important, but also why knowledge and truth is the most important thing. And he said a wonderful thing. Uh, he, he, said, he said, one thing we know for sure is that nothing stays the same. One thing we know for sure is that everything is changing. Now, as he said it, I said, you know, if, if you're an American, you don't want to hear that. Uh, I, he, I said it's such an obvious thing to him and such a non – I mean there's no political correctness involved. There's no potential of taking offense. But you know, I could see someone taking offense who really wanted things to say the same you know, with your children or with your, your life or your place where you live or your health. Uh, if he tells me that everything is going to change, that's threatening. And even there in that completely there was not a trace of any kind of attitude or position being taken. He simply stated a classic truth. And that truth is something that everybody ought to hear. Nothing that we have is going to stay the same. You know, nothing, no association, institution, or set of identification markers or things that you believe are true about yourself. None of that is going to stay the same by definition. All is flux in that sense. So uh, that means that there is a great message of the end of the dream and the truth of the downfall of the static self and the ego in favor of the one divine energy of uh, ultimate ontic uh, quality that is that which is all around us and all through us and suffusing us and to put it very very simply love ye one another i mean to put it very simply the message of life is not uh, live your dream dare the impossible reach as far as you can reach the message, if there is any theory of life, and Mark Rutherford didn't even believe there, you could actually say there was a theory of life, but I believe you can say uh, with very uh, strong backing from historic precedent and just life that um, there is one ultimate truth in the midst of it all. That is that if you love one another, you are closer to that one great uh, um, sea of love, to quote Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers, you are closer to that great sea of love, as in Solaris, the Tchaikovsky film, where the sea of love surrounds the man and his father at the end, the sea of love. That is the ultimate truth, both for the pseudo-ambitious and soon-to-fail, and for the having-failed, and what the... <laughs>
WTF uh, response in uh, the history of your individual life. Love ye one another. Thank you very much. And I guess the final conclusion is there are not two messages. There are fused into the one.